Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Sports, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am your host, Paul Nepper, and today I'll be talking to Mark Snyder, co-author of the new book, Mountaintop, the inside story of Michigan's 1997 national title climb. Mark covered sports for nearly 20 years at the Oakland Press and Detroit Free Press. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I should point out at the start that Mark and I were both students at the University of Michigan during the time of the uh, during the the nineteen ninety seven championship run. Uh, sorry to date you, Mark, um, but we did not know each other. Uh, anyway, it's a thrill for me to relive this magical season. And um, you know, when you when you're a student attending it, you feel like you're part of the experience, like you're part of the games. But uh, yet, I learned so much more about this team. Um, Mark, beyond the obvious, you know, an undefeated season and a national title, what made the, the 1997 Wolverines special? I hope that they walked really made it unique because this is a team, you know, a lot of times you find championship teams and they're kind of destined to be championship teams. And Alabama, you know, Georgia, I mean, these teams are powerhouses from the beginning. They're in the top five. You know, it's going to be one of two, three teams that wins the championship and that team usually pulls it out. I mean, every once in a while there's something, but with, with this Michigan team, there were so many things, as you can tell from the book, that could have gone wrong and didn't. And everything kind of fell into place perfectly for this one season, and it all kind of gelled. I mean, they were doubted from the beginning, and they kind of proved everyone wrong. I know everyone kind of lives on that mantra, a lot of these teams, of the disrespect. But this team, really, no one believed in them from the beginning. Yeah, talk a little bit about what was the state of the Michigan program heading into that 97 season? I think because they had, I mean, relatively, I guess, based on what came later with Michigan. But basically, in 1995, you know, the spring of 1995, Gary Moeller was fired in a drunken escapade, you know, at a Southfield, Michigan, outside Detroit. It was a restaurant. And uh, and all of a sudden, the program was thrown into turmoil because he was going to be the Hall of Fame coach that succeeded the previous Hall of Fame coach, Bo Schembechler. And it was just a going to be a machine that just kept going. He had had a Heisman Trophy winner, Desmond Howard. And, you know, he had won a couple of Big Ten titles. He had a star in Tyrone Wheatley. But it just didn't 
So all of a sudden, this guy who was a longtime assistant, you know, 15-year assistant, Lloyd Carr, is thrust into the job, not ready for the job by most people's standards. And then when he went 8-4 and four the first the next two years, you know, he was definitely walking that tightrope going into 1997. And four straight four-loss seasons at Michigan, that was, like, unheard of to have done that. You know, and this is the first class – that 1996 group of seniors that didn't go to the Rose Bowl since, you know, the early 70s when teams started going bowling, you know, every year. So it was really a unique te- time. And I think that people didn't believe this team. They thought it would be mediocre Michigan, and maybe that would be the time that, you know, Lloyd Carr was going to be on his way out. The title of this book is Mountaintop. Um, where, where did that title come from, and, and, and what is its significance for this, this team this season? there was a tragedy on Mount Everest where a number of climbers died on their expedition. And what happened was Lloyd Carr read a book about that called Into Thin Air by Jan Krakauer. And he, when he read that book, he saw the circumstance of the people who died and how tough it was. And, and it was just a terrible story. But Lloyd Carr always, as you'll read in this book, saw things differently than other people. So he came home and he said, well, what about the people who live? You know, there's got to be one of them who has an interesting story and one of them, you know, and because they were just kind of less of important, you know, Krakauer was one of them. But there was some people, other people who he found out that one of them lived in Metro Detroit or in the area and his name was Lou Kosicki. And Lou had turned around at the point, you know, he had said to his wife before he left, I'm going to turn around at the point where there's the no turnaround point. You know, I'm coming home to you no matter what. And he got so close to the summit, but he knew the conditions weren't right. So he made it home and other people died. And anyway, Blake Carr kind of connected with him and he brought him in to talk to the team and Lou's inspirational story about being about teamwork, the need for teamwork, the uh, following the rules, staying together as a group really became the theme for that season. And each week, you know, it was just climbing this mountain. And the, the basic thing about climbing the mountain is like a tired adage. But with this team, it was more about the idea of the, of like Mount Everest and working together in that bond situation. And they each week on their little video presentation by Phil Bromley, who's the video coordinator, he had a little thing where the guy moved. It was antiquated graphics in 1997, but moved up the mountain one step, and they just kept going, and, and it was their climb. And each one was kind of a different step, and they related the different stops along the way to the climb of Mount Everest. Part of what makes any book interesting is, is compelling characters, and this book has a long list of them. Uh, I want to start with Coach Carr, Coach Lloyd Carr. What was Lloyd like as a person and a coach, and, and why did he appear to engender such loyalty from his players? I think they understood kind of that he was humble. He was not interested in the glory. I mean, there were a number of things behind the scenes that Carr did just to kind of create that bond, but he was invested in these kids' lives. You know, he was a teacher. He had been a school teacher when he was a high school coach, and he loved the teaching. He loved reading. And what he did is he kind of took these these kids, you know, they were there to play football, you know. And what he did is he forced them to learn some poetry and talk about themes and understand ideas. And he, he taught them as he went through. And I think that the, as much as they maybe thought it was kind of corny at the time and everything, it resonated with a lot of them. And they found, formed this bond. Obviously, he was the leader. But what he did is he was so organized, having been a teacher 
And that was something that really wasn't in college football at that time. And that organization really became something that people could trust him. His coaches could trust him and the players trusted him because what he said was genuine and sincere. And obviously, you know, there was some profanity in there like any coach, but I think that they understood that it was by design and he wasn't out to just treat them poorly. He was trying to make the team better and he believed in the things he was saying. Really throughout the eighties, nineties, even into the two thousands, Michigan had a great string of quarterbacks, you know, a number of guys that went in, went on to the NFL from Elvis Gerback to Todd Collins to of course, Jim Harbaugh, uh, up through Chad Henney. Um, but that heading into the 90 season, 90, not 97 season, they really didn't have the guy, right? Somebody who was a, a kind of a blue chip prospect to take over the reins. Um, Scott Drysback, who many thought was going to be the guy, had thumb surgery, as you outlined in the book. He was never the same. Scott Loeffler, similarly, was derailed by a shoulder injury. And some guy named Tom Brady wasn't quite ready to take over. So, Brian Greasy stepped into the role and he had kind of a, 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 you know, a circuitous journey to that starting job. You talk a little bit about Greasy's journey to become the starter of that team. Yeah, Brian, it was really interesting. I think that obviously when you grow up and your dad's an NFL Hall of Fame quarterback, there's a lot of pressure, especially if you go into doing the same thing you did. You played the same position. You grew up in Miami where he was a star and Brian was never his father. I mean, he never just became that, that same guy and he never really you know he was a good player i mean he had a scholarship offer at his father's alma mater purdue but he didn't have too many offers so he decided to walk on at michigan with an understanding that you know if he stuck it out he'd probably find find a scholarship for him but i don't think he was an elite recruit by any means and but brian was really smart and his dad was really smart and he was really smart he knew how to play the game and he just kind of, kind of kept grinding. In that first year, when Dreisbach got hurt, he took over the team and he learned on the job. And it wasn't great, but he beat, he was in that game and he beat Ohio State when Tim Diakvatuka rushed for 313 yards. He knew how to take care of the ball and get out of the way. The next year, he didn't play basically the whole year. And what he did is he was the pooch punter on the team. I mean, you don't see <laughs> that ever from a quarterback, but he was humble enough to do that. And, he, and then when Dreisbach was bad in the Ohio State game, they pulled him at halftime, and then Greasy came in and made these two, three huge passes, including one to Ty Streets that everyone remembers for a touchdown when Sean Springs said he slipped, but, you know, Michigan fans see it differently, and uh, <laughs> he raced for the, and he beat Ohio State, so Greasy goes into that offseason, and he had had two years where he beat Ohio State, and in Michigan, you know, that gets you a lot of credit, despite everything else that happened, and Greasy had had his share of turmoil. You know, he, um, when he was growing up, his mother passed away from cancer. And I think as he told us, that's something he held on to for a long time. And you know how to process a lot of that. And as he was growing up, you know, some of that anger came out at different times. And one time, you know, I think he had a rough night at, outside a bar and he got arrested uh, because of an incident outside of a bar in Ann Arbor. And, you know, he was in jail and he came out and he was suspended from the team. He said he was essentially kicked off the team. Well, he, Carr said he was suspended from the team, but that taught him something. And he just said, you know, I don't know how I'm going to do. And so that last season, that 96 season, he beats Ohio State. They go to Outback Bowl. They lost the Outback Bowl. He played okay. And he decided, I'm done. You know, I'm going to go to graduate school. I'm going to be a water treatment specialist and get water to people in third world countries. 
And that was it. He had had enough of football, and he did what he did. He played four years of college football and thought he was good. And then his brother, he had a dinner with his brother. His brother's like, you're always going to have your whole life to, to be a working person. His, his brother was older and had some experience. And he said, you know, give it a shot. And Lloyd Carr was thrilled by that, even though he didn't show it. He made Greasy earn it. But Greasy worked harder than he ever did in his life. He spent that. He was a quiet leader. And he was ready. And Carr, you know, was valuing him and Brady in that offseason and knew that Greasy was going to be the guy. So Greasy steps in at the beginning, and he was magic the rest of the year. And, you know, Michigan got off to a great start to that season. They, they In the first week, they crushed highly ranked Colorado in the opener. Um, you know, given the expectations and 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 – kind of, you know, the, the mediocre Michigan moniker, moniker and how the last couple of seasons had gone, how important was that game and really the first few games to to that season? Switch defense, had switched his coordinators and they had two new coordinators. I mean, that never happens, right? You have two new coordinators. Unless you have a new head coach, that doesn't happen. So Lloyd Carr stepped down on that ledge. You know, Greg Madison had left for Notre Dame, so he picked a – uh, but and he picked a defensive coordinator, Jim Herman, who he elevated from a linebackers coach. And Herman had been studying for years the zone blitz scheme, uh, and there's a great story in there about how he kind of brought it to Michigan, how he pirated it from the NFL, but from the Pittsburgh Steelers. And what he did is he brought it in, and it was this concept. And because he had Charles Woodson in the back end, he knew he could take chances. So the whole concept of the zone blitz was to allow you know the guys in the middle to attack. And, um, and you know, still be able to cover the back end. And it was something new and revolutionary to college football. And Colorado was totally caught off guard. And if you watch that game back, you'll see how flustered they was. It was like, you know, the game was just a domination by Michigan's defense. It was crushing and it allowed the offense to start to ramp up and get comfortable because everyone knew after that day that this defense was legendary. Yeah. You know, it's – there are obviously a lot of heroes on this team, you know, and, and some of whom are big names. And, um, you know, there's Charles Woodson and Brian Greasy and, and Glenn Steele. And, you know, it could go on and on. Um, but the one hero I, I loved reading about in your book that I didn't know much about was Miss Georgia Woodson. Uh, talk a little bit about Georgia and the importance that she really played uh, for the success of this team roles, you know, in raising Charles into the man he was and that Charles was always focused and determined and he had his head on him on his shoulders, even though he was so athletic, he definitely was focused. I mean, I think that one of the things that you kind of learn about Charles is how grounded he was, you know, because of his mother. And some of that you saw um, when he was a recruit and he just, uh, he didn't come to all the pageantry, even though those recruits are wine and dine. He, what he did is he just showed up with his brother and his mom, and they watched the game. They sat in great seats, but, you know, they were there for the football. Anyway, and then um, in 1996, which is Charles' second year, the week of Ohio State, he was frustrated by the way, by something, and uh, he had, you know, he just decided he didn't want to do this anymore. So he knew that if he took a stand, uh, he was going to test the light car. So he just uh, didn't show up to practice. And showed up in street clothes in the week of the Ohio State game. You know, the biggest and car, the biggest game of Carr's career to that point. Because if he loses against Ohio State, he's probably getting fired. He knows that. And uh, and Ohio State was the big bully. You know, ranked number one, all this stuff. They're ready to or two. They're ready to go to the national championship and everything like that. Rose Bowl, and it just didn't work out that way because 
uh, was on the sidelines and they were going to lose. And then Georgia told Lloyd Carr and Vance Bedford, they called Georgia and she got involved and told Charles that he made a commitment. He needed to get back over there. So he did. He suited up. He practiced that week and he was obviously great in the game and then uh, became Heisman Trophy winner next year. At what point did, you know, teams and commentators start talking about Michigan as A, an all-time great defense, and B, a potential national title contender? Well, I think this was a regional story for a while. You know, everyone's like, well, Michigan always blows a game somewhere. And that's kind of what was happening. I think that Woodson got his attention in the Michigan State game. But really, when Judgment Day came and they played at Penn State and they crushed Penn State, which was ranked ahead of them, 34 to 8, then Michigan becomes the number one team in the nation. And when you go on the road and you whip another top five team, you don't just edge them, you dominate them. Then everyone kind of saw what it was about. You know, that that was a very talented Penn State team, and this is in Michigan just dismantled them. And then from there, you know, the stats were backed up by the performances and against great teams. And then you saw it again, you know, even against Ohio State, you know, near the end of the season as well. Yeah, I mean that was the the Penn State game was certainly the moment for me. You know, it, it was like you said to go into uh, another team's house like that, a powerhouse like that, that was also undefeated, and to just absolutely de- crush them. I mean, that game was er- over early in the second quarter. Um, I, I I know I specifically walked away from that thinking, "Wow, we could we could go all the way." Yeah. You ask the players, and they'll say it was over after one play. On the first play of the game, first defensive series for Michigan, Glenn Steele came off the edge, and he just slammed Mike McQuarrie, who was the quarterback uh, at Penn State, and everyone knew at that point, you know. And there were some stories that guys told. They could even tell before the game on the sidelines that it was there was so much energy, and Michigan was so fired up, and that Penn State wasn't sure what they were going to get. And then when they got it, you know, they just folded so quickly. Personal question for you. Did you go into Lee Bollinger's house after that game? Because I know I did. I was going to ask you that, Paul. <laughs> uh, I did not, but that was, uh, I was uh, working with Michigan Daily at that point. But yeah, that was a crazy night. And uh, a lot of people have a lot of stories from going into his house that night. I think it was a unique experience and something that defined that night for a lot of people. Yeah, it, I mean, it was unforgettable. For our listeners, Lee Bollinger was the president of, of the university at the time. I, he, he's now the president of Columbia University. Um, but after we just absolutely thrashed Penn State like that, people kind of took to the streets, uh, South U in particular, running around, chanting, you know, singing the fight song, screaming. And, and for whatever reason, we gathered around the president's house and uh and Lee came outside, gave you know, talked to the crowd for a minute, said how proud he was of the team, and then he said something to the effect of, you know, anytime we beat uh, Penn State thirty-four to six, whatever it was, you know, my house is your house, come on in, and like thousands of people ran into the president of the university's house. It was so bizarre. And then we got in there, and you're kind of like, okay, well, we're, what do we do now? You know, I'm just standing crowded in the president of the university's house. And so we kind of shuffled in and then shuffled out. But it was just this wild experience that I will never forget. They were drinking his beer. Yeah. In all the rooms, sitting on the couch. I think that after that, well, I think that Bollinger, you know, he was was an Ivy League guy. 
And that was, I mean, I know he's back in Columbia now, but I think he'd been at Dartmouth before that or something. And he didn't really know the whole football experience. <laughs> this was his first year as the president. And it's just, he just walks right into this crazy situation and everything. And so he's like, oh, yeah. I think it was kind of, and then after that, he's like, I don't think I'll ever let anyone in my house again. But I think that it was an experience that really opened him up to big time college sports. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, there, there are two plays from that season that still to this day, my buddies and I talk about, you know, regularly when we hang out or get together. And I, I want to ask you about both of them. The first one is, um, is Charles Woods's interception in the Michigan state game. And, and anybody who hasn't seen that, I recommend you, you bring it up on YouTube and, and check it out. Cause it's, it's just, it's still, I say one of the greatest interceptions I've, I've ever seen. Um, can you talk a little bit about that play and kind of its significance for Wood for Woodson and the season he was having? I mean, I think that, you know, it was one of those ones where Michigan State quarterback rolled his right. He threw the ball, Todd Schultz, and, and Michigan had been picking the ball off all day. I mean, they had six interceptions in that game. But this one, you know, he tried to throw the ball away. And I, I think he didn't realize that Charles could jump higher than anyone he'd ever seen. <laughs> so Charles goes in, he jumps. And he's in this like pike position, basically. And his hand went all the way up, straight up. The ball hits his hand and he cradled it when he came down. And he almost didn't realize what he did when he stood up. He saw him run like he was almost shocked. But a lot of the guys, you know, when you talk to them about how great it was, they're like, oh, we saw that stuff in practice. You know, we, <laughs> we knew he could do that. But for him to do it in a game, a national audience, everyone saw it. It just changed everything for him because – you know, we talk about these Heisman people and these quarterbacks and running backs who have these Heisman moments. Well, that's why quarterbacks and running backs always have a Heisman moment because they're touching the ball all the time. So Charles, suddenly, you know, he makes this interception and then it's like, oh, this guy, you know, when it's not a ran, it's not just some random defensive back making one crazy play. This is a guy who had consistently had been an All-American the year before. You know, he had been a finalist for the Thorpe Awards. People knew who he was and he was starting to, gather the interceptions and he had he was starting to get to the point where they're going to work him in on offense which is obviously a foreign concept Travis Hunter does it now but it was a foreign concept at that point especially you know on that stage for someone to try it and because Woodson had been obviously in high school you know an elite running back so he knew offense too and so Charles you know makes that interception and then after the game you know it's like Michigan which didn't really campaign for the Heisman realized they needed to do a little bit more because he really had a shot Right. And then, and then the second play to me, this, the other second most memorable play of that season uh, was Dadrian Taylor's hit in, in the Penn state game that you talked about. And uh, again, just, I mean, I just couldn't believe how he just obliterated that guy. Um, tell, tell us there's a little bit about that incredible hit and, and the aftermath um, I think that we tell the story and we go into great detail in the book, but basically, you know, he, he ended up being challenged, you know, because of certain circumstances that were happening in the game. He was challenged by his teammates and, you know, they just wanted to keep him motivated. And they, you know, I was in that Penn state game where all they wanted to all set a tone. And basically he had a shot and he wanted to prove something. So he just laid into this uh, tight end, Bob Stevenson from Penn state. And they, it was like a crack. And everyone who's in the stadium said it was the loudest hit they ever heard in their football lives. Guys who coached for 20 years, guys who played for, in the NFL, they said they never heard anything like that. It was like a shotgun. And both guys crumpled, 
you know, crumpled to the ground. And then Taylor sort of got up and wobbled, but he was clearly out of it. He didn't return to the game and Stevenson didn't return to the game. And he felt like he was okay and he flew home, but then he was, he was examined there. And it, but then there was a, a further examination of him once he got back to Ann Arbor and they noticed that there was a gap in his uh, spine and they didn't know if it was from that or it was just something previously undiagnosed, but he never played football again. He actually was in a halo uh, the next week for a couple weeks to protect himself as his, as he uh, healed from the injury and everything. And he never played football again, neither did Stevenson, but he's living a good, healthy life now. And, uh, but it was defining it. You know, it was one of those things that one of those bonding moments where the whole team said to themselves, and especially the defense, this guy gave his career for us. So we need to do him right. Yeah. Speaking of bonding moments, you know, every, obviously Michigan went undefeated and, but every, every undefeated season, every champion has uh, moments of turmoil, uh, moments of uncertainty. Um, was there a particular time during the season where a game or, or series or moment where things looked bleak for Michigan and they really had to persevere and come together to, to win the game and stay undefeated? Absolutely. The Iowa game, and you probably remember it being a yeah. fan. It yeah. was one of the quietest, times to that point that Michigan Stadium had ever been you know Michigan was down a couple touchdowns at halftime Brian Greasy had thrown three picks after really throwing one the whole year and to that point and they're going into halftime and it just became this thing what's going to happen at halftime you know how are they going to determine all of this and they get in there and they're going and Lloyd Carr I mean had the choice to kind of peel paint off the walls and scream and that's what Bosha and Malcolm and Gary Moeller would have done and Carr had done you know when he was first, second year coach too, you know, in those moments. And this time he treated it differently. He told them they were better than that. And that this is, this was going to define their lives, not just their season, because if they kept it alive, then they have a chance of something. If they blow it in the middle of the season, then, you know, everything's lost. And so that's basically how he left it with them. And Greasy said, I'm going to win this game. I'm going to play better than I ever have. And he did. He brought them back. They won the game in the final minute with Greasy. They won a touchdown to Jeremy Tooman. And it kept everything rolling. And I think that the idea of going through that adversity and being challenged in the middle of the season on their home field, they showed that they're a different Michigan team than the Michigan teams that had come before. So we're talking about the, the, the great Penn State game, you know, late in the season. And after that, it was, you know, it was really, uh, I remember thinking a potential trap game against Wisconsin at Camp Randall. But uh, Michigan, Michigan came to play and took care of business there. And then, of course, was the game. Um, and it's always maximum intensity and, and when Michigan plays Ohio State. Um, what, what did the game mean that season? Ohio State, for the third straight year, was in this position to go to the Rose Bowl and make a national championship run. And the first two years, Michigan had basically stolen it from them. They had done it with the Biak-Matuga game in '95. In 96, the 13-9 win in Columbus, which was terribly rare. And uh, they felt they owed Michigan something. Um, they jumped out to a, a big lead, and you know, Charles Woodson was part of that. He, he had a great game there, and uh, he had a punt return. He had been on special teams, you know, returning punts all year, but this time he brought it back. Uh, the return was perfect. It was all set up, and he brought it back for a touchdown, and I think Michigan set a tone. Ohio State came back late in the game, but then Michigan did these – you know, they were the ones who learned that they had a different 
philosophy. And they closed out the game. They closed out the win. And they went to the Rose Bowl. And it was this moment. I mean, by that point, you know, now Michigan hasn't been to the Rose Bowl since, what, 2000 and, oh, gosh, 2004 or five now. So it's been, you know, 18 years. And no one ever thought there'd be a drought like that. But at that point, they hadn't been to the Rose Bowl in, like, four years. And it was people were like, are we ever going to go again? They couldn't believe it. So it was this great moment, this great relief. These seniors, this group of four or five fifth-year seniors had kind of um, – been a quiet leaders, but really that was the, what that team needed, quiet leaders to kind of guide this team. And, you know, they celebrated on the field and they had roses in their mouths, which is an indelible image for any Michigan fan who lived through that moment. And they understand that really it was something special. Yeah. The, the, I mean, the two great images for me from that game are, are Charles, Charles Woodson with the rose in his mouth. And then probably my all time favorite sports illustrated cover with Marcus Ray laying out David Boston in just a great shot. Yeah, Boston had been, he'd run his mouth. I think it was kind of a thing for Ohio State receivers at that point. I mean, two years earlier, Terry Glenn had guaranteed a win, and Michigan you know, took him down when they had this. They had one of the best teams Ohio State ever had in 1995, and Michigan beat them in that Biakotuki game and stunned them. And then now Boston was talking a lot of smack, you know, going into the game, and Charles – you know, didn't answer until after, until in the game, but he remembered it all. And when Boston was trying to mess with them, he started pushing back and they got in this little fight. Neither of them got thrown out, which would have been devastating for Michigan, but uh, the helmets came off and they were battling and stuff like that. But then there was a shot, you know, where Marcus kind of came under Boston and flipped him up in the air. And it was a beautiful shot by, you know, sports illustrated photographer, but it was really a moment you know, that, that said, we're not taking anything from anyone, the defense especially. You know, they, those statement plays were really defining of that team. And, of course, you know, I mean, Woodson was a star of the game. And to, to have the game he did, not just the punt return, but an interception, a big reception, he, he, he kind of – he really displayed all the different ways that he helped the team win – and of course, he did that on the biggest stage in the biggest game of the year, and that kind of catapulted him to the top of the the, the Heisman discussion. Um, fast forward a couple weeks to New York City, and he's one of the finalists for the Heisman. Did did Charles think he was going to win? And he lived like he didn't think he was going to win. You know, he did, I mean, Charles was uber confident. He still remains that way. You know now in his life, but he was realistic. I mean, he just looked at the history. It hadn't happened. You know, no deep, no primarily defensive player had ever win the Heisman Trophy, and especially in a year where there's this guy who who came back for his senior year and is a big brand name in Peyton Manning, and that was going to be just – it was his to win. And there was this other guy named, who came out of nowhere named Ryan Leaf, you know, who was just this powerhouse and this big, huge, strong guy who put up these crazy numbers for that time for sure – in a major conference. And then there's this other guy, this receiver who put up numbers, Randy Moss. I mean, this is a, if you look back on that Heisman sermon, you got three NFL hall of famers, three of the best ever at their positions in the history of the NFL. And then you've got leaf who had this amazing season and it was a star started thing. So Charles is, it's like, I'm going to have a great time. First night he got there, went out with Randy Moss, painted the town. They had a great time. It was wild. And then um, the next day came and he was stunned. I mean, it, you see when, if you, everyone's seen the footage of when, you know, he won the Heisman and they announced his name and he just kind of dropped to a knee because he couldn't believe it. I mean, he's, 
you know, he never claimed to be too religious of a person, but he realized that that was a moment that was a little different, you know, than it came from somewhere else, he thought. And then, of course, they, you know, Michigan went on to the Rose Bowl and they, they faced Ryan Leaf, the aforementioned Ryan Leaf, and his Washington take his Washington State squad. Uh, what was that matchup like? Well, that was going to be versus offense, and that was going to be, you know, the push-pull of any, any football game on an elite level. You know, they had this elite offense that had set all these Pac-10 Pac records at that point, and Michigan's defense was setting Big Ten records, and it was like, we're just going to see how this goes. And early on, what's an interception, and Michigan just was grinding them down. You know, I, I think that there was a point in the first half where – Washington State could have busted the game open. They could have gone up by two touchdowns. And Woodson's interception, you know, kind of stymied that. And then Michigan just kept state in the game. And, you know, the fact that a game like that, you know, 20 to 16 or whatever it was, it was that close. And, and you hold this team that was averaging 40-something points a game to that. It showed how talented Michigan was and how what a great game plan they had. They were there to play football to win the game. And they had just enough offense, and that's the story of that season. They had just enough offense all the time because the defense was so great, and Leaf just was frustrated the whole time. Yeah, you know, you say just enough offense, and they did, but that game felt a little different in that, you know, all season long it was it was ground and pound. It was, you know, old school Big Ten football, and, of course, Michigan had this sensational offensive line led by uh, Steve Hutchinson, who's the – Pro Football Hall of Fame and and Captain John Jansen and it was just an incredible line and and they kind of had this three headed monster running back rarely through the wide receivers right it was mostly it was that that same play I love that you talked about the bootleg because that was it like that was our go to play which always seemed to work the little bootleg to Jeremy Tuman um, but they kind of they kind of opened things up a little bit in in that Rose Bowl game like like Greasy threw a deep to tie streets a couple times. I wonder, was that like part of the game plan? Was that by design or did it just, un, you know, just kind of sort of happen? Well, it was by design when that came around because, I mean, it, you know, Greasy says afterwards, well, if they had let me do it earlier, you know, we could have done that all year. Of course, right. that's Brian. He's, he's insanely confident and always has been. Um, but Ty Streets had, he dislocated multiple fingers in the middle of the year. And no one really knew that, and he wore gloves, so no one could really tell or anything. But he couldn't catch the ball, and so they didn't throw it deep. They did. That was just, and they didn't really have any. I mean, their other, their number two receiver was Russell Shaw, who was a JUCO transfer, and he was fine, but he was not a deep threat or speedster by any means. And the other one was Marcus Knight, who was still kind of young and would emerge later. But Streets was the only one who was an NFL caliber receiver. And when you can't use when you can't use your hands. You know, then it's a problem. So, yeah. um, he, you know, having that month to heal really worked for him. I mean, you're, he was probably better by the Ohio State game. He started to to do that. But I think that they, they knew that in that Rose Bowl they could pull out something. It's not often you can pull out something new for a bowl game that you haven't shown all season. And they were able to do that because Streets was finally healthy. They had time to work on the timing of that with Greasy. And uh, Greasy put the ball on the money each time. So Michigan wins wins the Rose Bowl, wins the game. They they go into that game as the as the number one team in the coaches poll, the AP poll. Um, but of course, then came the controversy. What happened with the national championship decision? Well, uh, Tom Osborne, 
you know, leading up to the Orange Bowl, Tom Orangeborn, who was Nebraska's legendary coach, announced he was going to retire. You know, he didn't need to announce it in advance, but he was playing the game. You know, he understood what, what was happening, and so he announced it, and then it became win-win for Tom, and all these coaches who he had been friends with for all these years suddenly were like, oh, yeah, it'd be great if you went out to the national championship or whatever. And so um, Michigan won its game, and then the Orange Bowl two nights later was – they were playing Tennessee, ironically. He comes back to Peyton Manning again. And uh, Manning, I think, had a minor injury, he'll say, but um, Nebraska just slaughtered him. You know, they, they killed Tennessee. It wasn't even close. And uh, then so coaches started switching their votes, and um, they flipped. And, you know, the coaches' poll was not released at that time. I think this led to a lot of – this season led to a lot of change in college football, including that the coaches had to reveal their votes at least at the end of the year to show some integrity there. But uh, ended up losing by just a couple points, and there was two votes, key votes that flipped, you know, and no one's, none of the coaches have ever admitted to it. But I think there was a lot of people who thought it was Phil Fulmer and, uh, from Tennessee, and he was still mad about the Heisman result, and he took it out on Michigan. And so uh, Nebraska edged out Michigan. Michigan won handily in the AP poll, but in the coaches' poll, Nebraska edged them out. So it's known as a split national championship. And how did the Michigan guys feel about that? Were, were they bitter then, and are are, are they were, were they angry then, and are they bitter about that now? Absolutely. Oh yeah, I mean, it, there's you know, every one of them had a story about how angry they were in the moment, and some of them still mad. <laughs> Glenn Steele, you know, <laughs> he and I when we met for the book to talk, you know, we were in this uh, in this diner in um, just outside Ann Arbor, and we're eating, and I when I got to that part and I brought it up and everything. You know, the way his eyes changed, his whole idea changed. He was getting angry. And I think if Scott Frost had walked in at that <laughs> moment, the quarterback from, uh, you know, who had been very mouthy and very, you know, talking pretty bad about Michigan and everything, if he had walked in there, that uh, I think Glenn would have gone gotten, gone after him 25 <laughs> years later. That's hilarious. I know I was furious as a student, but um... – so what's what's the legacy of, of this 1997 Michigan championship team? Well, I think the legends is that this is the only one. I mean, when you go seven, when you're the winningest program and you're just hanging your hat on more wins than anyone ever and all this tradition and you're this great program and you've won one national championship in 75 years, you know, that team's going to stand alone. And, you know, there are guys from the 69 team who, you know, kind of look at towards askance at this team and they say, well, we're the ones who brought the program back and we deserve the credit. We were this elite team. This is the only one that won every game. This is the one. And when you look at the talent and maybe no one realized it at the time, this team had 33 players who played in the NFL. You know, this team has three players. And though Tom Brady didn't play much on this team, he was the backup, but he was pushing Greasy every day and pushing the defense, especially, you know, a lot um, as a backup. You know, that this is – a rare team. If you look, they had three players who could be considered maybe the best at their position in the history of, of football, Brady, Woodson, and Steve Hutchinson. I mean, th this was an elite team. They had dozens of guys, a number of guys who played 10-year careers in the NFL, including, you know, the guy who only started kicking at the end of the year, Jay Feely. And he played a dozen years in the NFL. And Jeff Backus, you know, a great story about how in there about how he came out that year and had overcame a lot. I mean, it, this was just a team that had so many pieces and it showed what Gary Muller and his staff had built 
in terms of recruiting and then what Kara and his staff continued and everything kind of worked perfectly. But when you're the only one, you know, in such a long period of time, you're the only one. And I think at a school like Alabama or Georgia or even Nebraska, these places that won multiple championships, those teams somewhat blend together. Here there's only one. It was nice to hear, to hear. It sounds like a lot of the guys have still have a relationship, at, at least with Coach Carr. Are, are a number of the guys close with one another? They're within, like any football team, within those groups. You know, they still have their groups of friends, and I think that those things have continued in a lot of those guys. And it helped us, obviously, in the conversations. We talked to every key player on the team, and a lot of them connected with connected us with each other. And they, and they talked about each other, which was really nice. And, you know, we've heard from a lot of them since the book's come out and everything. Um, I think that that connection, you know, between these guys, there was no overwhelming egos. There was no jerks on this team, I think. To I mean, there were some guys who were a little louder than others. And some people think, you know, they look at them, you know, a little bit differently. But they all remember. Everyone had a role and everyone was fine with that role. And they knew it fit. And the further they get away from it, the more they appreciate what they had. I mean, I, I guess we didn't talk to Tom Brady. He's probably the only one of, you know, maybe consequence that we didn't get to. But I think even him, you know, who's won more championships than any of these guys, he, and those are valuable. He'd probably say this one was different because, you know, when you're with college guys, it's not the money. It's not, you know, people don't have families. They don't have – this is their bond. This is just them. And when they've had these reunions, I've been to a number of these reunions actually with these guys. And every time, you know – like every college football team or college team, you know, the stories start coming out. But these guys know that what they did, what they had was unique. And the older they get, the more they appreciate it. Yeah. Um, all right, Mark, I'll get you out of here with one last question I'd like to ask all my guests. Uh, but first, let me say once again, Mark's book is called Mountaintop, the inside story of Michigan's 1997 national title climb. And, uh, Man, I, I loved it. I mean, I just, I just loved it. Uh, obviously, it's somewhat personal for me, but I think uh, you don't need to be a Michigan, certainly a Michigan student or a Michigan fan to enjoy it. Um, you know, I, I love great point by Mark. You have, I mean, there's three pro, pro football Hall of Famers on that list, um, on that team, um, including all arguably, you know, the best at their position ever. Um, lots of great characters. The story, I mean, there's just like one great story after another um i mean we we touched on a very small percentage of them um so i definitely recommend checking out this book um mark my final question for you is what is your all-time favorite sports book yeah curveball here um i don't remember they have like kind of a foggy memory of it you know, and those kind of things. I think those are kind of the moments that people remember. And they, and when you can put them back in a place, you know, haven't been in a long time. I mean, that's one of the things, or they don't really know that much about, you know, like Eight Men Out, obviously, you know, the movie was what it was, but the story was a little bit more raw. And I, just to read the dynamics of that and kind of how that unfolded, it was, a, that was fascinating to me. You know, I mean, I read it many, many years ago, but, um, just kind of that whole idea, you know, uh, ones, you know, led to eight men out and everything, you know, just the, those stories. I was really, when I grew was growing up a huge baseball fan reading about the history and some of those things, you know, with Roger Kahn, you know, uh, boys mm-hmm. of summer, stuff like that just really resonated with me. Yeah. 
All right, Mark, first of all, thank you for writing this book. Um, I've been, it it was the perfect book for me. Uh, And thank you so much for coming on the podcast to talk about it.